Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sins. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Lead me not, let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory will dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our Old Testament lesson this morning is from 2 Chronicles 33. This is our final week in 2 Chronicles as we followed the awakening work of God's grace and his mercy in this Old Testament church. 2 Chronicles 33. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals and made Asheroth and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And he carved image of the idol that he had made set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed to your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray, to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress... He entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. 
Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And his prayer... And how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and his faithlessness and the sites on which he built high places and set up the Asherim and the images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his house and Ammon, his son, reigned in his place. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you, as we sit before your word, we ask that we not be like Manasseh and Israel in their day, who heard your word but paid no attention to it. May we hear you speak, may we be assembled to listen, and may you draw us to yourself this morning. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Many of you have heard me speak of uh, my mentor, who is an African-American man. He is a pastor. And uh, oftentimes, while preaching, in the midst of his preaching, as he reaches the crescendo, he will exhort the congregation to pray for him. That would be completely uh, uncharacteristic of a Presbyterian sermon. But I somewhat feel the necessity today. My daughter came in this morning at 4 o'clock and the plague has finally struck the Colson household. And, uh, and so I feel like I'm a ticking time bomb, wondering when that's going to, uh, when my good fortune will end. And so if you get an exhortation to pray for me, you know what this is about, because I hope to see you through to the end today. But it is, uh, there are many people sick in our congregation, especially amongst our young families, and so do pray for one another, please. Uh, there is a lot of flu um, around uh, the city of Jacksonville right now. We are completing uh, this series through Second Chronicles where we've looked at the kings of Israel and the awakening grace of God and the different declines and declensions that have happened amongst the people of God and asked, what can we learn from this? As the grace of God is in our midst awakening us, what can we learn? And so we come to chapter 33, a chapter about King Manasseh finally today. And while he was convalescing on the southern shore of England, Robert Louis Stevenson, the Scottish novelist, wrote over the course of three days his epic gothic novella, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's the story of a split personality. In fact, it's so famous that the title entered into the English language of Jekyll and Hyde, where we all know immediately what it means. That Jekyll and Hyde was a split personality induced by a serum where there were two opposing figures living inside of the same person. It's complex and wonderful, and it resonates with all of us at a certain level. 
because we feel that duplicity inside of ourselves, that we know a Jekyll and we know a Hyde. And when we read the story of the Old Testament and we look at the kings of Israel, we see something of the same struggle being played out on a corporate national level. That we see the struggle in the church that there is a Jekyll and there is a Hyde. That there is a tendency and capacity towards compromise. And we've seen that that compromise takes up two forms. That there is a brazen form of this compromise in which the church simply moves into all-out idolatry. That mosaic prescriptions are thrown away and the promises of God are trashed and they are forsaken for other forms of worship. And then we've also seen that the second form of compromise, though, is that there's a subtle form of it. That the mosaic law and covenant is kept, and yet it is something that happens inside the heart of the people. That they begin to find their strength and their trust and their confidence in themselves. We saw this with Jehoshaphat, who was a reforming king in the middle of remarkable success. But in the midst of the height of his success, he formed foreign alliances with Ahab, the king of northern Israel. And he placed his trust in these alliances, and he was to place his trust fully in God to be his defender and his shield. He found his trust and his security in something outside the gospel. It was a subtle form of compromise. And we find here in chapter 33 a brazen example of this compromise with Manasseh. It's summed up for us very eloquently in verse 2, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the great condemnation of the book of Chronicles, that the kings either did what was right and good in the sight of the Lord, or they did what was evil. And Manasseh, over his 55 years, accomplished a great amount of evil. And there are two bookends, as you look at verses 1 through 9, that capture Manasseh's reign. Follow with me. In verse 2, after the statement of him doing evil, he did evil according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And what's being said here is that Manasseh reversed the reforms of his father Hezekiah, who was a great reforming king. And Manasseh plunged the land. He took the church and plunged it into such darkness that the church became more polluted. The land was now more polluted than it was before Israel entered into the land out of Egypt. And you find this concern once again stated in verse 9, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. In between those two bookends, those statements about how polluted the land had come, there is a litany of what Manasseh does. He rebuilds the high places. He erected altars to foreign gods. He began to worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. He added altars to the temple of God where God's name dwelled. He went out into the valley and he sacrificed his sons. And he also consulted fortune tellers and mediums to receive guidance. This litany of Manasseh's violations goes deep into the heart 
of the covenant that God had made with his people. Deuteronomy 18 lists exactly every one of these infractions. And the point is being made with a loud exclamation that Manasseh had taken the church in a way that he was never to do it. He had done it in a way that he had no permission to, that he had gone against God, that he had thrown away everything. Not only had he broken the precepts of God, he had scrapped the promises of God. He wasn't interested in the regulations of God because he had no interest in the redemption that God had brought to the church. Friends, this was Manasseh's evil. It was the compromise that had taken place. And what's important for us is that we see and weigh all of this compromise, that we see the subtle forms of it that took place under men like Jehoshaphat and Uzziah, and that we also see the brazen forms of it that take place under men here like Manasseh. And it's incumbent upon us as we feel the weight of that subtleness and the brazenness that we receive two obligations from God. There are two obligations that come clear to us as we feel the weight of this. And the first is simply this, is that we have to have a realistic opinion of ourselves. That this is the first thing that strikes us is that what's needed is a self-awareness about who we are. That we have to see that we are like the, the Old Testament church in the sense that we're just as vulnerable, that we're exposed to the same mistakes. Because we've seen that good kings like Solomon make tragic compromises. Solomon multiplied horses, and he broke what God had instructed him to do, and he went down to Egypt to find his strength, and he was not to do so. And despite having a wonderful reign that had brought much blessing to the church, it ends with this tragic compromise at the close. We've also seen good starts, like King Uzziah, who then had a bad finish, that he grew proud and he grew strong and he defied God. He wanted to do things his own way. We've also seen that good kings like Jehoshaphat make really huge mistakes, really tremendous blunders, but they can turn to correct them, that they find repentance in front of God. Here in 2 Chronicles 33, we see something unique though. We see a shift from one generation in Hezekiah to the next generation where they, we move from faithfulness to complete unfaithfulness, where we move from orthodoxy into no orthodoxy at all, where we move from the Mosaic covenant into just all-out idolatry and the worship of every god under heaven. And friends, it's important for us to recognize that we are not above this nor beyond it. When we read all of this history, the Apostle Paul tells us that it is for us and for our instruction, that we are to learn from this and that we're, we're to receive it. And friends, our part is to receive it humbly, to know that we're not above it or beyond it, that we are complicit with it, that these dynamics can find us out as well. And the major question for us to answer this morning 
is what does this then require of us? And it's one fundamental posture that we've visited over and over, that the awakening grace of God, what it does to us, what is required of us in the middle of all the church's compromise and all of its various forms is humility. That there must be a willingness to recognize our capacity and to own our sinful weakness. That we're to live with this dependence upon God. We're to abide with a living faith, shielding ourselves off from brazen forms of idolatry and shielding ourselves off from the subtle forms of compromise, of growing strong and self-confident. That engaged with God in a living and a humble faith, following after him and receiving his good promises to us, knowing the promise of God and then following after the precepts of God, hearing the regulations because we know we've been redeemed by God. This is what's required. This is the first obligation that reading this history places on us. Now, the second is very simple as well. The second obligation is that we're to listen carefully to the word of God. Follow with me in verse 10. After we have the litany of what Manasseh does and the the direction, how far the church can stray. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. In the middle of all his compromises, it was not that God went silent. The prophets were still active. The word of God was being spoken, but there was no friendly recipient. There was no one paying attention They were indifferent and self-indulgent. Despite simply a few years before this, Hezekiah leading the people in a massive reformation. They had now simply gone the other way. And rather than worshiping the God who created the sun and the moon and the stars, they now bowed themselves before the sun and the moon and the stars. Things had gone completely upside down. And friends, it is only from hearing the word of God that we know exactly who and what we are. And when we pay no attention to it, we make ourselves incredibly vulnerable to then fall into the compromise that when we are not paying attention to our incredible capacity to deny what the word reveals about us, we don't like what doesn't flatter us. Because, friends, the word of God reveals like a mirror, that it puts something up in front of us in which we can see accurately. And Calvin says it like this, when we don't find something that tickles our pride or flatters us, we don't want to listen to it. And, friends, this is exactly our need, something that doesn't flatter us, something that doesn't tickle our pride, something that shows us who and what we are clearly, and to listen carefully to it. This was Manasseh and the church's greatest need, but they paid no attention. And we must always live in this humility, and we must always live in paying attention to the voice of God and the Spirit speaking through the Scriptures. This is the church's actual strength. Several years ago, as a young pastor, I was in a very challenging relationship with another Christian. And there was an infraction in our relationship that amounted to a pretty major league betrayal. 
And on the back side of that betrayal, there was a wound, a wound on both sides of the relationship that was very difficult. His life went on from strength to strength, and it seemed that he was untouched and unassailed by the wrongs that had been done. And as I watched him move on from strength to strength, I felt that God had simply betrayed me and left me. I grew angry and upset and frustrated. I complained to God and I told him how wrong it was. And then one day I was reading scripture, very familiar words, words that I knew, but words that I didn't care to hear. It's Romans 12, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I thought that's quaint. <laughs> so nice. What a great sentiment. But obviously Paul just doesn't really get it. That he didn't know what it really meant to be wronged and for injustice to be served and for a wicked person to continue on in their way. That they just continue to get to go from strength to strength to act like nothing has happened at all. How am I supposed to overcome evil when evil just seems to have its way? What do you want from me with this, God? I struggled with this verse. I knew it was true, but I didn't know how to apply it. And I hardened myself somewhat to what God had spoken, to what God had said. And so you ask the natural question, what did God do? He bound me with hooks. <laughs> he bound me with chains of my own making. Very similar to what he did with Manasseh. Manasseh hardened himself, and then in verse 11 we find, Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And friends, though it was harsh and a severe word from God that happened here to Manasseh because he paid no attention, it was ultimately a gracious word. It was a gracious thing that God did. And God bound me too with hooks and chains. And what he specifically did in all of my anger and all of my justifications of it and all my feelings of why I was okay for me to be mad and to seek vengeance myself and to exercise my wrath against this person, what God did was unique. He sent multiple angry people into my life. <laughs> he let me be the victim of their anger. He allowed me to see just what it looked like and how ugly it was and how fueled by self-pity and arrogance they were. And it was a mirror, a mirror of uncompromised clarity, making things very apparent about who I am and what I am. And God patiently led me to repentance, binding me with hooks and chains of my own making that were heavy and hard. It was my own choice. And friends, this is why we have to listen to the word of God. We need it. We're desperate for it. To sit in this humble posture in which we recognize our great capacities and our tendency towards compromise. And then that we sit and we listen carefully for the words of God to instruct us and guide us and lead us. This is the church's strength.
This is when the church experiences the awakening grace of God. It's not when it's strong, but when it is in this weakness, ready and dependent, supple and teachable, humble in the dust. This is what has to happen. And so these two reflexes, weakness and listening, are the church's strength. But the final question that comes to us this morning through chapter 33 is what happens when we get outside of this? What happens when the church does betray its strength? When we get outside of weakness and listening and we find a horrid, wretched example in Manasseh of him running far outside of the strength that the church has. But then we see this beautiful and gracious act of God Because what we find in verses 11 through 13 is that the church is never beyond hope. Follow with me in verse 12. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. What had happened is that Manasseh entered into political alliances with several smaller kingdoms against the largest Syrian regime. And then the Syrian regime came upon him and dragged him away, taking him into exile. And while in exile, though, Manasseh repents. And he turns to the temple and he prays. And according to the promise that was placed upon the temple, that when the people of Israel prayed and repented and came in weakness and asked for God to atone for their sins, they would find it. And friends, his repentance followed the stated grace of God. And this is the church's one hope. In the middle of all of our compromises, whether brazen or whether subtle, That we have this one hope that the grace of God stands ready to meet us. That it stands ready to run after us. Because, friends, we do and we will transgress the boundaries of God's law, of his good prescriptions for us. We will go far outside of them. But the saving hope of the church is that we cannot transgress the boundaries of God's grace. That, yes, we can go outside the law, but we cannot go outside of the grace of God. That God comes to capture us. He comes to restore us. He comes to renew us again and again and again. That this is the work of God. And this is what happens to Manasseh. The very man who took the church and took it into such darkness that it was worse than when Israel came out of Egypt. And God was not ashamed of him. God restored him and renewed him. And on the other side of that restoration and forgiveness, Manasseh rose to a new purpose. It's impossible to know this morning where some of you are and where some of you have been this past week. But as you read Manasseh, what God says to us is that none of us are beyond the grace of God. No matter where you have been, no matter what you have done, no matter how far outside of things you may feel that you have strayed, that God welcomes you to come to him, to turn, to to find his grace, to find his forgiveness that is freely ours through Jesus Christ, that he's made the sacrifice on our behalf, that he's given himself and that he's risen from the dead. He's now our righteous advocate. 
and we look to him and we stand right in him. And he's our security and our foundation in front of God. And that we're never beyond hope. That this is the vitalizing message of the church. It's the source of return. And so we repent and we rise to new purpose. But what keeps us from doing that? What is it that holds us back from simply repenting and then rising to this new purpose? And friends, I suggest it's fairly simple motions that keep us from doing it. And the first would just simply be our pride, that we don't like to admit, especially to other people, who we are and what we've become where we've been and what we've done. It's difficult for us to put words to it and announce that we have done this and we have done that. We don't like to repent because it, call, it calls for something from us in which we have to own who we are and what we've done. A second reason is we're just lazy. That repentance requires work. It requires receiving the word of God that puts a mirror in front of us. And then we have to look at that unflattering image. We have to look at the unflattering image and own it and say, that is me. I am that man. And it's much easier just to turn our head and pretend it didn't happen. Like my Christmas diet, it was just easier to buy bigger pants. This is what we do. final reason that we struggle with this is just self-deception. That when we look in the mirror, we just want to blame the mirror, that there's something terribly wrong with that mirror. Its dimensions are just not right. That the fault lies there, the fault doesn't lie with us because we think we know ourselves accurately and we give ourselves a wide berth for our intentions and our motivations. I didn't mean it that way. And friends, we can be self-deceived. And that self-deception, that laziness, and that pride that lives inside of our hearts, that's native to us, so often keeps us from repentance. And the grace of God is welcoming us in the most simple ways to turn, to hear his word, to confess our wrongs, to live in that kind of humility and to find that a grace embraces us and welcomes us and restores us and invites us to rise to new purpose. And even though all the hell that we have created with our lives and our decisions, like Manasseh, that can be overcome. Because in verses 14 through 20, what we find is that all the wrongs that Manasseh had done, he starts to roll back. And he is not able to roll all of them back because they were so deep and severe. But God didn't accept them because he rolled them back. God accepted him in his grace and in his mercy because he forgave him. And friends, this is the great freedom that we now enjoy. Despite having gone outside all the bounds of his law, God receives us, calls us his own. And friends, this is why the church always lives in the prayer, revive us again, O Lord. This afternoon, take Psalm 85 and read it once again. Revive us, O Lord, that we may rejoice in you. Revive us again, O Lord, is the constant cry. That's where we live. 
humbly before God, listening to his word, and with repentance, not growing proud, not being lazy, not being self-deceived. That's the work of the awakening grace of God. Allow him to have his way in you and in this body. Let's pray. Father, we recognize all of our capacity and all of our tendencies, both to brazen idolatry and also to more subtle forms of compromise. And we need your help. Help us to be attentive to your word, to hear it and to see ourselves clearly in it. And may we turn and we know that Jesus Christ, our advocate, stands ready to save us. Help us, God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.